Well, welcome. This is The Professor and the Hack, episode 85. I am the hack, Hugh Remington, and uh, as always, the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Uh, hello to you. G'day, Hugh. More disturbing stuff coming out of um, Parliament. Richard Miles, the Deputy Labour Leader, saying these aren't, bi- these aren't partisan issues. There are bipartisan concerns. But uh, all of Australia by now will be aware of a young Liberal Party staffer who says she was raped by another staffer inside the office uh, of the then Defence Industry Minister, Linda Reynolds, now the Defence Minister, uh, and that she felt she had to choose between going to police and keeping her job. How much is this shaking uh, the parliament, you know, the people in the corridors of Parliament House? Because I no longer live and inhabit in those mm. places. Is it what people are talking about? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's a real, you know, almost stunned silence at one level um, about the fact that a rape could have occurred in what is one of the most secure buildings in the country, inhabited by some of the most senior people in the country, the way that it has been described to have happened. Uh, It goes entirely without saying that uh, if the rape allegation is true, uh, that as of itself is obviously the the most horrible, most concerning thing to have happened. Uh, But the implications of it, whether... Um, you know, what, what, wherever the details of the facts lie, depending on what does or doesn't happen criminally from here, uh, the, the process that followed it is something that is also stirring people up considerably. The idea that a young woman uh, has felt like she didn't get the support that she should have gotten from her boss and from her side of politics more generally. Uh, And, you know, the best case scenario for the minister and the Liberal Party in this is that that they followed processes that weren't appalling, but they still left um, a victim feeling unsupported. And that of itself is something that they would and should be concerned about. The, you know, that's, that's their best case scenario. Their worst case scenario is that everything that she says is absolutely accurate and that it was diabolically bad, therefore, the way that she was treated in the aftermath of raising these issues. And there was potential, therefore, intent and whatever else there might be in trying to manage her and even manage her out, perhaps. What does all of this leave us with? The, 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 in a sort of pragmatic where-to-from-here sense, uh, obviously the potential, you know, the, the potential criminal act is its own issue. Does this now get followed up by police? Uh, the the lady involved has said that she wants the investigation to reopen now and she is now going to pursue that. So we will see where that leads. But on the other side of it, in terms of the politics of this, uh, we can talk endlessly about what it says about the culture and all the rest of it. But in a pragmatic sense, Really, Hugh, whether it's this or some of the issues that came out of Four Corners or other issues that have come up over a number of years, when you talk about MPs and staffers across the political spectrum, one of the real problems um, in terms of the parliament as a workplace is that there isn't what you would call a human resources department for the parliament. You know, so if you work in one of the news organisations, you have your human resources because if you work for 10 or 7 or one of the newspapers, there is an HR department and and behaviour sits under the auspices of the business. But if you work in a minister's office or an MP's office, there isn't really 
an HR structure to which you can make a complaint that isn't drawn into the partisan discussion. So rather than somebody, whether it's bullying in the workplace or whether it's something even more untoward than that, there isn't really a spot that a person can go to that they would normally be able to in a normal workplace. So therefore, whether they feel it or whether they are treated that way or both, whatever happens in that sort of an HR environment is not dealt with separately to the politics of the building and the partisan contest and the potential media story. So politicians end up, you know, and it's not something that they should be proud of, but politicians end up quite quickly, it seems, seeing an HR issue as also a political problem for them rather than, and, and then they are also called on to manage it. Like, so for example, in this situation, it shouldn't be Linda Reynolds as the minister and therefore the staffer's boss managing the situation the way that she was. There should be an independent arm's length HR department doing that, but there isn't one. Uh, and so unless the unless the structures are changed, unless they get an independent one somehow that is covering both sides of politics, which would have its own problems uh, because there would be worries about it and, and all of that from the partisan operatives, or unless there is some rewriting of the structures around political staffing that makes them more partisan in their workplace contracts than they actually technically are, such that the organisation, the business that is the Liberal Party or that is the Labor Party or any other political organisation, you are therefore technically somehow also employed or under their control, whereby you have to go to their HR department, which would probably in some respects require them to actually set one up in the first place. There needs to be that sort of change and that sort of consideration. And my prediction, (laughs) whether this renders it true or false, is that that will be, once the heat comes out of this, the understandable heat, by the way, that will be the sort of cold, hard, pragmatic considerations that need to be looked at. And perhaps we might see some type of announcement or move in that direction. Yeah, you wonder whether political operatives, as they all are, want to have a separate organisation that can embarrass those officers. Potentially, they hold everything so tight. But what we're left with, absent some sort of HR structure or something such as you describe, as as Linda, as uh, Lisa Wilkinson said on the um, the project, it seems to me the easiest place to rape a woman and get away with it is Parliament House. That is pretty bloody awful. And the other thing is that her choice that she felt she was confronted with in that awful time in 2019 after this uh, alleged rape had taken place was that she didn't feel she had a choice to proceed with police if she wanted to keep her job. She's now indicated she wants to proceed with the police inquiry, reopen that, but she's given up her job. So her prediction uh, was right with that. She's also had to give up her privacy uh, in order to to bring this into full light. And those are weighty, weighty things mm. to have to give up uh, in order to try to square the balance of power in a circumstance like this. And, and it is hard to be anything but admiring of her decision to speak out on this because even even and this is one of the things to go to your first question about the reaction in the building her and and i'll get a further understanding of that now in the wake of um the full interview being aired on the project but you know there's no there is no suggestion and i even the most cynical amongst us would struggle to find such a suggestion that there is anything other from her than her genuinely wanting to bell the cat on this um as she described having been unimpressed, outraged, gobsmacked 
at watching what happened with Four Corners and then watching the Prime Minister uh, awarding the Australian of the Year Award, she just decided she would speak out. There's no suggestion of, of any value to her in that uh, other than wanting the story to be told because it's an important one and her not wanting it to be buried. And that Call, is Calling out a certain hypocrisy. Calling out a Exactly. Hypocrisy. And it is yeah. incredibly admirable. Often in these situations, I guess my point here, you know where I'm, where I'm going with this, often in these situations there are um, you know, partisans who try to muddy the waters and undercut or undermine the credibility of the person that becomes the whistleblower in, as, is, as this victim also is. But there is no suggestion um, from what I have picked up so far of anyone even trying that on because I think they would understandably be shouted down. She's, you know, she, she, she has nothing to gain by this other than doing what is the right thing and speaking out about what she alleges happened to her. Uh, and, and it's going to have a profound effect on her um, going forward. And yet she, she's done it because she knows that it's the right thing to do. And so as a result, she's getting a lot of support now, even if she didn't feel like she was getting, yeah, and I mean in the broader media in the broader narrative, uh, even if she didn't feel that way internally before. Well, we wish her well, and we hope that uh, justice runs a satisfactory, satisfactory course for her. Um, it's been a distraction, of course, uh, and that's not to make light of it in any way, mm. but uh, we have other uh, really important areas of public health and public policy that have uh, begun this week on the biggest historic issue of our times, and that is the pandemic. Uh, 142,000 Pfizer vaccines arrived on Monday. The vaccine rollout is to begin. Uh, the plan is to obviously start to pump them out through the states, healthcare workers, uh, hotel quarantine, the elderly to get uh, the first ramping up to a million vaccinations a week. This is what uh, Greg Hunters has mapped out. Are we within sight, even as uh, as we speak, Victoria remains in a lockdown? Are we in sight of the end of it, do you think, Peter? Well, I, I don't think so. Uh, and I tell you what, the, the minister seems incredibly ambitious with his target uh, of the number of vaccines. But, you know, hats off to him if he can achieve it. I'm, I'm sure it's not a back-of-the-envelope calculation because... He's a savvy politician, uh, Greg Hunt, and I don't mean that in, in any pejorative sense, but he would understand that when you put those projections out there, if you don't meet them, you get criticised for it. So he would be feeling confident that the groundwork has been laid to achieve that. So we'll, we will see what happens. But I tell you what, it's um, yeah. I, what's your view on this, Hugh? I find it, you know, we have this new Pfizer vaccine that, that arrived on that Singapore Airlines plane, um, you know, jetted across from the other side of the world. Uh, it has to be kept at sub-zero temperatures or else it gets ruined, essentially, as a, as a vaccine in terms of it being a working vaccine. It's got to stay at zero, at, at uh, 70 degrees below, uh, which is an extraordinarily cold temperature. Uh, and it arrives in boxes in, I understand they're apparently high-quality eskies, not the kind that you uh, don a bit of zinc and head down and watch the cricket with. But Ultimately, keeping all of these all-important vaccines cold, it's not refrigeration. It's just dry ice stuffed in between the vials. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not questioning that it, whether it works or not. They obviously have determined that it does. But it just feels like, it, it feels like a, a bit of a chat about how do we keep this stuff really cold for a long trip? Well, let's throw a bit of dry ice in. <laughs> I was, uh, my confidence was enhanced by the fact that it was being carried in by a bloke uh, called Norm in his Haviana thongs <laughs> and uh, with his uh, Hawaiian shirt and uh, a beer belly. He said, she'll be right. Here it is. 
Um, <laughs> sitting in the plane there with a with a banana lounge as he as he brought the stuff in. I take your point. I presume they know what they're doing, but yeah. uh, it'd be a hell of a waste if they didn't. Well, I, I I do too, but it's funny, isn't it? I sort of had these visualizations of these you know sealed refrigerated units coming out of the plane um, at you know great expense, almost purpose built for this for the purpose. And then I see these boxes coming out, and it's like, oh yeah, they're in a bunch of eskies with dry ice. Good luck. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. And, and I actually am sure it's fine because they must have tested it. But wow, it's uh, it's it's funny how sometimes the least professional seeming thing can actually just be fit for purpose, assuming it is fit for purpose. Well, the the TGA, we're told by the health minister, will be doing batch testing to make sure it is fit for <laughs> purpose. Uh, I don't want to be guilty of uh, of uh, of feeding into uh, vaccine hesitancy, but to make sure that it might not be right. Uh, I hope to God it does work, and I'm sure they do know what they're doing. God knows we've waited for it, and um, and well, you and I won't be getting the Pfizer vaccine anyway. Hugh. Uh, no, we won't we'll be getting the AstraZeneca one produced locally, but uh, this is the one, of course, that goes to the the front line workers uh, who are at most risk and it's the one that is the most likely to protect uh, on the percentages as i understand it yes and and i think that's that's entirely right i mean in fairness to the process it's been slow but then we've got unlike the uk where they've had that emergency allowance to do it um we have through uh our tight borders more than anything else obviously some leakage around hotel quarantine of the virus which has caused all kinds of grief but uh, we're in a much happier situation. We can take this extra bit of time. So uh, this hopefully will we'll start to see some impacts around the world. We see globally now that the infection rate is starting to fall off, in part because of public health measures uh, biting uh, in the United States uh, with a new presidency, if nothing else, but also because vaccines are starting to get out a little bit. So maybe there is some, some good news uh, still ahead, although the, you know the virus is going to be around the world in some form for well, quite possibly for the rest of our lives, presenting all kinds of threats. Um, we'll, I, I, I might leave the vaccines there for now. We'll see how that goes. We'll take a quick break, but there's a lot around issues of integrity and public policy, and I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast have taken interest in it, and I'd love to hear your views on a few things. We'll take a break. Come back in just a second. Hey, Husey here. You can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Channel 10's hit show. Well, now there's more to get. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack. This is episode 85, and uh, you're with Peter Van Onsel and The Professor and me, Hugh Rimminton, um, uh, from Channel 10. Integrity. I read a piece in Crikey. Uh, about how we have become accustomed, I think he's, the, the Crikey article was right, that we've become accustomed to breaches of integrity by politicians in Australia. Our opinion of politicians is fundamentally so low that when they're caught out doing things which are flagrantly wrong with our public money, with your taxpayer dollars, it's like we go, oh, yeah, oh never mind, that's what we expected anyway. And there doesn't seem to be any calling to account. We could go through a list. You could go through a list. Sports rorts uh, now added to it. The Peter Dutton community safety grants all being, well, not all, but substantially being directed, it would appear, for political benefits. 
uh, there's you know water buybacks and other stuff in New South Wales. We've seen money that was supposed to go to uh, bushfire recovery to try and do stuff. Uh, the vast majority of it not going into the local government areas that were most affected by the bushfires, but where votes presumably are, are best harvested. Uh, and, and no sign of a federal integrity commission being proposed that would actually have any teeth to deal with it. Have we got, Peter, do you think, uh, to the stage where cynicism in the public about politicians feeds and allows cynicism by politicians because they know they can do what they damn well please and get away with it? Look, we do to some extent. It's, it's a little bit like the normalisation that we also saw as a result of all the changes of Prime Minister recently, and the normalisation that that didn't mean a government was chaotic and dysfunctional with Morrison's ability to win the last election. You know, when, when it happened to Rudd getting rolled in his first term, people were aghast. Then it happened to Gillard and they were aghast at the dysfunction with Rudd coming back. Then when the Liberals emulated it with Abbott, they couldn't believe it and there was a penalty suffered by Turnbull at the following election. And then obviously Turnbull got rolled and there was an assumption at that point that there would be another penalty on the side of politics that fed into that chaos and dysfunction, but Morrison steered a course through it. Now, in no small part, that was his campaigning skills and, and, and fear of what Shorten was offering. But another factor, I think, was the public simply just giving up on the idea that the political class will rise above such petty internal squabbling and destabilisation. In other words, it was normalised. I think talking about issues around perceptions of corruption or standards or or integrity uh i do think now it's just so baked in that people are just accepting it and also part of that acceptance um i mean shaking of heads but a view that they're all as bad as each other acceptance i think part of that is also perhaps a cynicism about media reporting of it in the sort of post-trump era the ability to damage the media um, in mainstream Australia when it is simply reporting what has happened, but because of portraying it uh, as having an agenda, left or right, whatever it might be. Uh, there have been examples of the media becoming more polarised and more silo-driven and more partisan in some section. There's no doubt about that. But there's also the mainstream media, which tries not to do that, but rather just hold incumbents to account. It gets tainted with that brush very easily, both by the sections of the media that are partisan and by the partisan operatives in politics themselves. And that filters through to, I think, the public being less perturbed in the first place by integrity, but also less, um, if you like, trusting that accusations of a lack of integrity or suggestions of a lack of integrity are themselves being made with a level of integrity that makes them accurate. It's it's interesting because when the sports rorts thing broke, you were very strong. You said, we need to talk about this every week. We need to not stop talking about it because fundamentally uh, what lies at the heart of it is a theft. It's a theft from Australian taxpayers. It is their money, which is supposed to be being allocated if there's any value at all in things like sports grants and community safety grants and so on, if there is value to be had in them. It is where it is directed to those where the, where the needs are most appropriate in a way that is politically blind. Otherwise, if you happen to have the misfortune to live in a safe electorate, you're not going to get money, even though your local community thing, whether it's a sporting organization or a community grant, uh, needs it. 
you're not going to get it because it's going to go somewhere else. And the defense had always say, oh, was, oh, you know, everyone who got it was, you know, was grateful to receive it. And, uh, and all of them had value. And, you know, and that's the kind of argument that gets made. But it's about votes and it's your money being used to, uh, to harvest votes. And there is no other purpose. And uh, I, I think that the outrage should remain and people should demand more of their politicians uh, for mine. It's a shame that, that we don't. And, and it was interesting. There was um, a Productivity Commission interim report into the National Water Initiative, all very dull stuff that came out last week. And in it was a report. It was, it was a, a page, a kind of almost like a box, uh, <clears throat> a case study under the headline flawed decision making at Dungowan Dam and it described a dam that is uh, up in the hills outside Tamworth. Tamworth ran desperately short of water at one stage during the millennium drought and again in the more recent drought and uh, the water minister at the time uh, Barnaby Joyce it was his electorate as well um, helped to broker this half a billion dollar plan for a dam up there Product, productivity commission says it's a waste of money that the water the dam is not going to deliver uh more water it says uh, dams don't create water uh, uh the um you know local councillor up there mark rodder i spoke to him he says all the water in that particular catchment area is already over allocated so uh, you know people have already got their dibs in on the water that might come so a dam in there doesn't make any difference it just by damming it up it means that there's water that people can't get access to and the water that could have been delivered into tamworth that was represented by that half a billion dollar dam could have been done for 10 million dollars two percent of the cost barnaby joyce says oh the productivity commission's just got it wrong but um you know, that kind of thing, just, you know, as they say, a half a billion here, a half a billion there, and sooner or later it starts to add up to some serious money. Yeah, look, it certainly does. Uh, and there's there's so many examples of it now. I mean, you, you know, going back to what you said about my comments around sports rorts and that we just need to stick to this like glue going forward. The pandemic got in the road of that uh, and a myriad of other issues got in the road of it. And, and frankly, sports rorts ended up looking... Um, somewhat microscopic as far as problems go compared to others that have been raised. But even those other bigger ones that get raised uh, look microscopic compared to the challenges of the pandemic and what they do to people. And it just becomes somewhat overwhelming, quite frankly, even, even just Hugh, even as a journalist and commentator covering this and trying to make sure that you pay appropriate attention to issues as they come and go, it feels overwhelming. Uh, you know, the, 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 you don't almost have the resources or the human capital to deal with the swathe of issues that are there um, as one person. Uh, and even if there's a few of you on it, it you know, the cycle is so fast now and something else comes up and before you know it, you don't have time or energy or capacity to report on something. I mean, it was only recently that Bridget McKenzie appeared before what was essentially the sports warts inquiry that's going on. Uh, and it was extraordinary testimony, frankly, that she was giving and, and lines of questioning around what the Prime Minister or his office did or didn't know and, and her responsibility vis-a-vis changes that were being made that were inexplicable, um, where the assumption was that they were being made by the Prime Minister's office, but she was saying otherwise, and Morrison doesn't know anything, and I, I didn't even report on it because there was so much else happening at the same time. I found myself not even reporting on something uh, that, you know, 
12 months earlier, I said was something that none of us should ever give up. And I think I probably reported more on it than any other gallery journalist. Um, but such was the swathe of other issues in the mix uh, that it fell a little bit by the wayside. It's, it's a strange, strange times at the moment. And, and that goes a little bit to the point of what we're seeing going on with the Google and Facebook uh, uh, deals that are attempting to be done to get some of their money uh, to come back towards uh, uh, traditional journalism because uh, they've been essentially uh, using the market power, the argument goes, to get the advertising, um, but uh, that comes from news without actually giving any money or significant, sufficient money back uh, to the people who make the journalism so consequently newsrooms are short of the very people who could do the work that you describe so that's that's a process that, mm. that's going on um just one other example while we're on bugbears here the casino inquiry in new south wales yes. remains a remarkable thing we've got this uh, anyone who lives in or has traveled through sydney will see the tower of barangaroo uh, just next to the uh, sydney harbour bridge its face gazing out towards the setting sun and the blue mountains uh, quite a striking building uh, all designed with the intention to get a high roller casino in there that was going to bring in overseas uh, uh, you know big money gamblers this was the packer plan uh, it at the moment has um, uh, no casino license because of what an inquiry found was going on uh, that there, it was there were judged to be not fit and proper people to run a casino there in their present guise this has been well reported but all of this, or, or nearly all of the evidence of Crown having been infiltrated by organised crime, think about that, comes mm. out of the Melbourne Crown operation, which continues to do business. And <laughs> so there's this clean out of management and some board and other kinds of things that, that is going on. Uh, they've also, Crown also has its asset in uh, Western Australia at uh, Burswood. And just in the last 24 hours, uh, after some media questioning, the regulator of casinos in Western Australia has stood aside because it's been pointed out that he has close friendships with Crown management, including going out on fishing trips together. And th that sense of, you know, oh, you know, shock. You mean there's, there's organized crime within the casinos? It took media reporting all credit to the 60 Minutes team who, who, who broke the story of the degree to which uh, there was corruption within, uh, you know, in plain sight, effectively within Crown in Melbourne. It's having its impact on the Sydney Crown casinos. Um, it's starting to cause some embarrassment at long last in Western Australia because it's the same mob uh, that's responsible for the licences. And, uh, and yet, in, in somehow or other, that great, great edifice on South Bank in, in, in Melbourne, where all this is going on, still operates. Nothing to see here, folks. It is remarkable. It is remarkable the failings. You know, when you, can, when you talk about how strained journalism is, that, that it was journalists who, who actually made it intolerable for that circumstance to be allowed to continue because the political classes and the business classes at the big end of town were quite happy weren't too curious about what was going on in those casinos and it's a bloody disgrace is what it is what well, and the other thing you is just as a very little add-on the inconsistency of how it's been reacted to state by state well doesn't that just fit in with the inconsistencies that we're seeing around 
everything from mask wearing to border management, you name it. It, it's, it shows us that we really are a federation, uh, which results in state-by-state inconsistencies, you know, even on something uh, which perhaps should be as united as, as a reaction on that front. Yes, I can't help feeling there is a there is an enormous lack of curiosity, and I take this to the political classes first of all, but it goes to the to the top end of business as well. Crown has been a major organisation for a long time, and uh, you know there the, there were ample opportunities in the business world for questions to be raised. It cannot have been events that people could be so blind to, but the fact that the People who take these essentially elite controlling positions in our society uh, utterly, utterly let us down. And it is exactly what happened with the big banks uh, until they were finally stirred up and, and shaken up by a royal commission. So um, if, you know, if people want integrity in public life and in business life, uh, keep pushing for it would be my advice, PVO. That's that's my closer. I'll try. I'll try. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I mean, we're out of time. I could bang on, bang on. You know what I'm like. And I like it when you bang on. I think other people, the people who tune in, they don't want to hear me bang on. They want to hear you bang on oh, that's and have true, a good mellow know. rant. <laughs> but um, PVO, all our other outrages will have to wait for another time. But we'll talk soon. Thank you. Good to chat. You too. Stay well. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.